core desire of our being, what we could call dhamma chanda, desire for dhamma, is the urge to be liberated, the urge to feel and give, receive unconditional love. This morning there was some discussion around holding the, I, the vision, the idea of the path, the, pa- the fruition of our path, and at the same time staying grounded in the present, doing the work, being a disciple of liberation, of truth. That's what discipline is and how to hold those. For those of you who weren't here, I I use that image of the master navigator giving the transmission to the young novice, Hawaiian navigator, as they stood on the south shore of Oahu and looked out in the direction of Tahiti, 2,500 miles away. And the master navigator, Mao, saying to the younger one, Nainoa, can you see Tahiti? And I know, saying, no, but I see it in my mind. And then the, and Mao saying, this is good. Keep the vision, the island in mind. If you lose the vision, you'll be lost. And with that, Nainoa learned the skills and art of non-instrument navigation. Learning to feel through his body, through the canoe, the currents of the sea, learning to read the uh, the patterns, the natural law in the turbulent systems of wind, rain, clouds, and so forth. Being very much in the moment for that. It is having to sustain what's called a six-limb equanimity. Six-limb equanimity. Refined balance, a sparkling presence through every sense door visual field, an auditory field, scent, taste, sensation of body, and the intuitive, mental, emotive field of experience within. Six, six limb equanimity. I'd like to talk tonight about equanimity as a quality of the stillness in our practice and out of which comes the profound and pure compassionate action that we do toward ourselves and toward all beings. And the the value of, of keeping the vision in mind, keeping the island in mind for our practice. Compassion is caring. It is the, the motivation to help beings, all beings, beginning with ourselves. It's the source out of which we serve spiritual growth in and around us and uh, all within our reach. How we can create a field of merit, of possibility. How our lives can touch everyone who crosses the orbit of our own. Non-attachment is the non-ego-centered selfless presence. Non-attachment or equanimity. A a non self-centered presence. It is the, the absence of the need to control experience, the non-attachment of equanimity. And it is a tool, a primary tool of self-liberation. The, the gradual uh, realization or awakening of the Dhamma of selflessness, anatta, or emptiness, um, opens up the natural and radiant mind that is non-self-centered. With that groundedness and non-self-centeredness in anatta, the, the heart naturally opens, emanates, radiates, connects with all beings. The result is compassion. We view beings in compassion, for we see first our own and the suffering of all beings, and that motivation to help beings, to 
to serve their spiritual growth in whatever way, whatever action or skillful non-action. Non-attachment and compassion are the expression of selflessness. The poem from Chuang Tzu um, illustrating that not acting is not the same as passivity. In this practice, we emphasize a lot the quality of awareness that's um, uh, both a sparkling presence, yet also a non-striving, not trying to get anywhere or get rid of anything. This is called the need to win. When an archer is shooting for nothing, he has all his or her skill. He shoots for a brass buckle. He is already nervous. If he shoots for a prize of gold, he goes blind or sees two targets. He is out of his mind. His skill has not changed, but the prize divides him. He cares. He thinks more of winning than of shooting. And the need to win drains him of power. Anuruddha was one of the leading disciples of the Buddha. And he was known uh, as having the power of the noble ones or of the Arya, or the profundity, development of his mindfulness, the extent of his mindfulness and its powers of insight. Very developed, very uh, uh, accomplished mastery of mindfulness. Uh, And what what defines the, the power of the noble ones is the capacity to see the attractive in the unattractive, and the unattractive and the attractive. And to have an impartial or balanced response to either. An example would be looking at a compost pile and seeing beauty in it, seeing the nurture in it, the potential for a beautiful opening of a flower. And on the other hand, it's, it's looking at a flower and seeing its composted nature already in its beauty, in its scent, in its radiance. And balance before both of those powers of attraction, potential attraction, or repulsion. Anuruddha had the six-limb equanimity. From its foundation, from its uh, one's rootedness, in this six-limb equanimity, the expression of compassion and the spirit of service can flow forth. This is a quality of a uh, both an Arya being, that is one practicing for self-liberation, or a bodhisattva, one who practices uh, and uses service or cultivation of paramis, generosity and patience, loving-kindness, in, in service of his or her uh, long evolution in becoming a Buddha. Those two potential paths or lineages, the Bodhisattva and Arya. The, the deep balance, the evenness, the quality of serenity that comes about from developing this equanimity and the, and the care, the compassion that comes out of it are qualities of, uh, of greatness in individuals and of inspired leadership. We look at great examples today of leadership that have the quality, these bodhisattva qualities of greatness. Nelson Mandala of the Dalai Lama, or Aung San Suu Kyi of Burma. They're living examples who all have very similar attributes of seeing their work as essentially work on themselves. And it's certainly beginning with work on themselves. But they must see the, the violence or the anger or the greed within first. And however long or deep 
they, they serve what they represent. They're, they're as ambassadors of what they believe in or of their people or the mission of justice and liberation. They see it continuously as a deep personal and spiritual practice. And then that slowly as they become, you know, even as a work in progress, more uh, exemplars of the dignity of spiritual growth, and they feel uh, some degree of empowerment to help others. These same qualities, by nature, they very rarely regard themselves as anything special. I'll bring about later. Um, true, true peace, or the the possibility for reconciliation, comes from one's own inner nature, and it's felt when we're around someone exhibiting those qualities. We don't have to find Aung San Suu Kyi or the Dalai Lama. Just here in retreat, you can feel often when you pass another yogi, deep in practice, really within themselves, really feeling the experience, the, the, the dhammas of the moment. You, they pass you, leaving this wake of peace, of, 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 of awareness, of compassion. It's visceral. And one then feels an ignition within of those same qualities. You internalize it, or it's awakened within. Graceful, graceful motion of someone with these bodhisattvic qualities developed through the honesty, dealing with the greed, hatred, delusion within and are gaining some uh, status of generosity in their life and loving kindness, care, motivation to serve. This compassion and equanimity uh, are the very tools of navigation in face of the way of the world, the vicissitudes. It is the continuously changing nature of things. In particular, the Buddha regarded our world, our psycho-experiential world, that is what we feel, what we experience uh, psychologically through all the sense doors, moment to moment. He called this uh, loka, the meaning of the world, not as place, not as physical place, but the world we mostly live in, loka. And he called loka Dhamma, Dhamma again is uh, meaning here nature, uh, nature of the world, way of the world. Our lives in the world, our lives in samsara, are deal with the way of the world, and there are eight conditions of this loka dhamma or way of the world: pleasure and pain, praise and blame, gain and loss. Fame, a good reputation, disrepute. Everyone experiences all of these at one time or another. Even Buddhas experience all of them, whether it's uh, deserved or not. We get praise when we didn't really do it, <laughs> or we get blamed when we didn't really do it. Uh, and as we've seen in our practice, Every sitting is a good amount of dukkha and sukha. Oh, this is good, this is pleasant, I like it, I want it, this must be the real thing. Oh, this is bad, I don't like it, this uh, bad practice, what's going wrong, what did I do wrong? I ate too much, I ate too little, I slept too much, I slept too little. And, and, and the mind is very quick at assessing what's acceptable and what's unacceptable. But the truth is, it's lokadama. It's just experience as it is, pleasant or unpleasant. There are many things that can cause a sitting to feel successful or not, or a day of practice to feel successful or not. It can be uh, what the Buddha called uttu, or uh, weather, temperature, or ahara, nutriment, uh, food, how we're affected that day by food. 
weather, food, consciousness. It's the quality of the mind that day. Different conditions, different quality of consciousness, mind states, emotions. No control. Or karma. Just experiencing the results, which is a large amount of what we experience when we experience pleasant or unpleasant sights, sounds, sensations, and so forth. They are results. Any number of past actions, thoughts, speech, any number of lifetimes. When we sit here and we're experiencing all the stuff that's coming up, it's called sankharas, just all the formations of, of mind. It's kind of like really burning it off in this crucible, this heat of purification, of, of the power of, of, of awareness and the capacity for compassion to hold experience in a delicate yet firm way. We're burning off all these kind of sankaras, these karmas. That's why the Buddha called the Eightfold Path uh, the karma that ends karma. The kind of karma, the kind of practice that sets no new seeds in the stream of mind that bring cause and effect. So this pleasure, pain, or praise and blame, or gain and loss, or fame and disrepute, this is just the way of the world. And our response to it may either be reactive, you know, grasping or rejecting, or we may use the very uh, tension arc of opposites, of contradiction, these opposite things, pleasant, unpleasant, success, failure, and so forth, as our uh, crucible of growth. And that's where the equanimity and its ensuing compassion are such powerful allies of this practice. Equanimity has uh, a near and far enemy. That is something that masquerades as equanimity and something that opposes, is completely the opposite of equanimity. The far enemy is being reactive. It is instead of being aware and fully present to these loka dhamma, to the way of the world, to experience as it is, uh, we're in, we stay uh, unconnected, not directly and precisely uh, in touch with what's happening. Uh, attachment and, and aversion become the motivated response not just being with it, not feeling it, and not pausing, creating the, the, the space and understanding and feeling the intention or the potential reaction and taking a more skillful, measured, compassionate response. Instead, the mind just quickly grasps or push away. That's why it's called the, the, the far enemy. It's just the opposite. Um, our need to control experience arises largely uh, from this reactive mind or dependent behavior that our sense of well-being depends upon things being a certain way or not being a certain way. Getting rid of the loss, of the pain, of the disrepute uh, and, and bringing in the pleasure, holding on to the pleasure and the praise and the gain and the fame. So our practice is in, is in carefully watching the reactive mind, coming to know it, coming to understand it. Uh, a good friend of ours is an environmental attorney, and he came from a, a long retreat here, six weeks, uh, not so long ago, a year or two ago, into the courtroom. And while he was uh, here, he was reflecting on his uh, vocation as an attorney, and um, you know the degree of of truthfulness in the realm of law and its use or not use in the, in the courtroom, in particular. And so he had just been aware of the teachings of the Buddha on saying what is truthful, and also saying not only if it's truthful or not, but saying it 
whether, when it's useful and abstaining from saying something even if it's true uh, when it's not useful. So he was sitting there and, um, and still on retreat mode and the, um, the opposition you know, uh, that he was fighting for some saving of forest were, um, they were up there and they were kind of battering away at the jury saying that this particular environmental law firm and then they added something not really necessary but I think that they were hoping would uh, goad the the jury into a, a, a favorable decision against the the law attorney and that is he kept referring to the funders of the law firm uh, it happened to be Ted Turner so maybe that area in the southwest I don't like Ted Turner or represents you know uh, they were hoping that they would get a sentiment of the uh, of the, the logging industry or something I don't know but he, he kept saying and the um, uh, this environmental law firm funded by Ted Turner and again and again environmental law for, uh, uh, attorneys point here uh, funded by Ted Turner and our friend was set there going over in his mind sort of noting truthful 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 unuseful, unuseful, unuseful. And he, he was sort of in a meditative reverie when there was a, you know, a moment of silence there where the opposition was waiting for our friend to respond and the, and the judge said, uh, you know, Mr. So-and-so. And he, you know, got up like this and he said, objection, not useful. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the judge was a bit befuddled, you know. And the opposition started going through their law books looking for <laughs> unuseful, unuseful. <laughs> and so there was a moment of confusion and silence. And then the judge said, I don't know whether or not it's unuseful, but it is not relevant. <laughs> Objection sustained. Of course, there's a more radical example of uh, being dependent, of dependent behavior, reactive behavior, is what they call, you know, mad, mutually assured destruction, where all the superpowers have uh, so many, uh, so much capacity to totally destroy the planet, and that's supposed to bring peace. It's supposed to establish a sense of, of balance, and of course, it's based on this reactive, dependent thinking and behavior, you know, the far enemy of, of uh, equanimity or the wisdom of non-attachment. The near enemy of non-attachment is uh, to disconnect, to, to have an attitude of indifference to the lokadama, to experience pleasant, unpleasant, uh, praise and blame and so forth to be apathetic or to, to not feel. It is to numb out to experience, to insulate. We know these, they're, they're all great survival strategies, strategies as well. When the world is all too overwhelming, when it's too impossible to imagine the, the concept of mad, mutually assured destruction, that kind of thing. You know, of, of course, tendency, if we don't have the capacity to open to such madness, is to numb out, to defend against the pain, the overwhelmingness. But it keeps us out of touch as well with life as it is. It keeps us disconnected from lokadama, the joys and the sorrows, being in touch really with how things are, what's real. defending against pain. Some of the ways in which we often hold these emotional or uh, con conditioning karmic knots uh, in our bodies. Uh, Paul Reps, who I mentioned before, who lived with Michelle and our daughter and I uh, 17, 18 years ago, uh, 
Uh, I hope I didn't tell this story already. We're kind of losing our minds here in old age, but let me know if, if I did. <laughs> the body language thing, I didn't tell that this, week, this time, good. People would come to our house for uh, either for the, the Dhamma classes that, that we gave twice a week, Vipassana, or reps gave one once a week in the studio. Uh, and uh, people would come up, friends of ours, really looking forward to meeting this, this famous character, Paul Reps. We'd bring him into Reps' presence and begin to introduce. And it, he was, as you've learned from the previous stories, he was anything but predictable. So often he would look at someone and look at their body language, their posture, and immediately pull something out of them, or, you know, like, uh, you're really angry, aren't you? Or you're really depressed. And, and he'd say, uh, you know, are you aware of how your shoulders are caving in around your chest and you can hardly take a real full breath and you don't get enough oxygen and it doesn't flow to your brain and causes the imbalance here and on th there? And, you know, haven't even said, reps, this is so-and-so. Uh, and, and the person is just diminishing and diminishing. But before they disappear, he sort of grabs them in his way he can, goes right to the heart and says, come here, let's do a little exercise together. And he'd say, uh, now let's, uh, let's put our arms up and now stand up on your toes, reach up to the heavens, look up, take your hands, spread them, bring them down, bring them in front, bring them down, bring them up, bring them up, up on your toes, down, this way, up and down. So five or ten minutes of reps, calisthenics. And he'd stop them and just have them drop their bodies and say, all right, take a breath, full breath, let it go. And he might say, now that's the first authentic breath you've ever had in your life. <laughs> and you're no longer depressed, are you? <laughs> you do something like that every time. And these poor people, you know, they, each time they'd come, they'd be so curious because he was so charismatic and enthusiastic, and yet they'd be terrified at the same time. One day, Reps is out, and I was cleaning his room, lifted up the pillow, and there's this little paperback, how to read body language. <laughs> <laughs> it uh, just made me love him all the more, you know. <laughs> Using whatever situation, you know, just to in, in service of deeper understanding, spiritual growth, and uh, attention, compassionate action. And now activists often ask our state, or get, make a statement, social environmental activists, uh, Michelle and I teach an annual retreat for them. They say, well, anger drives me. Anger drives my work. It's how I make change, I try to make change. I get things done. And, you know, often this is somewhat true. And, but what may not be understand is that it's always at a price. There's always a, a the burnout. Because anger costs energy. You can see when we sit, we have a particular, you know, papancha sitting. Often, something very aversive of fantasy that we identify with and we go through a whole uh, melodrama and at the end we're exhausted. And this is the energy of the emotion that can do that. So it, it's a source of burnout. It also conveys the message that only anger and projection uh, can, bring, can bring change that, uh, uh, that's based on mistrust. It's like that, that mad balance of ballistic missile philosophy for peace. And thirdly, it, it solidifies the self-view, the sense of I, me, mine, or attachment to, to opinions, so that there can be no understanding of, of the truth, of causes and conditions that, are come, that come together each moment for our experience of who we are. No spaciousness. Only this sense of, of right and wrong, 
of absolutism. And it perpetuates the cycle. And we only know how, to, again, to go through the anger and burnout and to uh, uh, use it as a tool of change and further solidify yourself. This is just the opposite of the quality of, of the bodhisattva, of the being with these great qualities. That is any one of us. I use bodhisattva also just in the term of all beings in the path of awakening. And these qualities of greatness I mentioned in the last talk, the profound changes of, of uh, attitude of mind. And instead of acting more out of reactiveness, we act and live out of the Brahma Viharas. Unconditional love, compassion, empathy, and mostly this equanimity. Equanimity has the greatest wisdom. It's the subtlest of mind states. And therefore it has the greatest wisdom in being able to see deeply and hold this vast range of opposites, the joys and sorrows, the pain and the pleasure, the gain and the loss. Without the equanimity, uh, all the other healthy, uh, skillful states tend to slide into their shadow, tend to not be pure metta, for example. The equanimity that sustains the, the purest, most selfless loving kindness and the wisest compassion it stays open to the pain, keeps the heart fed, open. There's two, there's two aspects of the equanimity that bring together most clearly the compassion part of it. Bring together the compassion and the non-attachment and make it like a single quality of mind from which we live and from which we attend to our practice, from which we attend to our lives. And that is the... Awareness of conditions out of which we take action. And secondly, letting go of attachment to the actions. The, the first is the awareness of conditions like the, particularly the Lokadama. Being aware of the way of the world. What we're faced with. Uh, an individual and, and practice uh, aspect of it, it's seeing our minds and seeing and feeling the, the, the longing for liberation or seeing and feeling the dukkha of our experience in life or feeling the, uh, whatever, the intuitive sense that there's a deeper meaning, something that's uh, emerging to be fulfilled Whatever the inspiration, uh, the motivation, which ultimately I feel is, uh, is, uh, is love, brings us to the zafu, to the retreat center, and sits down. We pay attention to these conditions within our own experience and take the action of whatever is necessary to make the transformation, to understand deeper, to know the meaning to come to Dhamma. There's a certain need to, to recognize the disconnection, to recognize the near or far enemies, the reactivity or the apathy. And you know, holding that knowledge and holding the knowledge of, of what inhibits, what resists, still we have this powerful motivation out of compassion and love to come take the action to do the work that has to be done. And as you've been learning, the depth of practice comes from letting go, trying to get anything, trying to control our experience, trying to make anything stay, even the really pleasant states, the subtle, 
calm, feeling of the deep contentment, or the rapture, the stillness. Try not to hold on to anything. If we do, there's sure to be the entanglement in the mind, the blockage, the identification. So we practice the attitude continuously of letting go, just letting the Dhamma be. And then it's up, once we do our action of being in the present moment again and again, over and over, you know, it becomes um, a way of being, a way of being in continuously letting go. It's ironic, it's paradox, you know, because we sit, or we walk, and we pay attention, you know, we do all the things that we're encouraged to do for practice, but at the same time we're told, don't hold on. You know, let go. Yes, something comes up, pay attention. Bring your mind there. Bring your full awareness. Feel those sensations. Feel that mind state. Open to it. But we're also saying, hold on to nothing. You know, enlarge the awareness to see the context of things. It's all just what it is, and it's beyond our control. But the second aspect, the wisdom of non-attachment, is the complete relinquishment of any need to control where the practice goes, how that sitting goes, how that day of practice goes, how the six weeks or the three months goes. That's up to the Dhamma. It's all, this is the anatta element here, selfless element, the second aspect. My mom is, um, she's going to be 90 years old soon. And we've been watching, uh, been watching her mind deteriorate a lot lately. She has these bouts of, of dementia. And um, it's really a kind of like obsesses on something or other, one thing or another. And recently I was, we were away, we were in New Mexico. Uh, for a couple of weeks, and then I was in uh, New Zealand for a month, and Michelle went home after we were gone a few weeks, and and my mom was uh, yeah, losing it. She we, we had hired someone to come several days a week to to help her take her shopping because she doesn't drive anymore, shop for her and cook for her and fix her hair and you know just fuss about her having a presence, a human carrying presence. And uh, had her for a couple of years now. My mom was going through something, and uh, we don't couldn't figure it out. But she fired her. <laughs> you know, which was crazy because fortunately Michelle got home in time. Because as soon as she ate what was in the refrigerator, there's no way she could get any food. And so Michelle you know, hired her back. <laughs> and the and the the poor care person, she didn't know what was going on. You know, she just believed my mom. And then when Michelle wasn't around, she'd fire her again. Michelle would hire her again. <laughs> and, and this kind of went on for some period of time. And then, you know, once when she was, while she was fired, while the caretaker was fired, my mom would wonder where she was. Why isn't she there? So it, it was kind of, kind of frustrating and um, certainly challenging. Uh, and took just kind of paying attention, even though we couldn't figure out all the conditions, paying attention to them and taking whatever appropriate action. Michelle kept hiring her back and you know, she called me at some point in New Zealand, help. <laughs> and um, uh, But then Michelle called uh, my niece to come down from California. And she came down uh, and in September. And since our niece has been there, my mom has been noticeably better. You know, that was, it was as if her mind in its deteriorating state was reaching out for some kind of change. And this was just the right formula, a family person that she knows and, and trusts and who's there all the time. Uh, and kind of who maybe fills the gaps somewhere there. So that now when we call, because it's a concern when we're away, we call, 
she sounds good. She sounds, she's doing fine, you know, relatively speaking. So it was a, this process of seeing, paying attention, of, of taking the appropriate action, but also it's not in our control. And we can, you know, rehire the caretaker and that may or may not work. We can bring the niece and that may or may not work in this case so far. It's working uh, uh, and giving everyone the least momentary sense of peace. It's profound to watch you know, how simple uh, worldly events uh, can deeply touch us you know, because they involve family, involve intimate things. It's the same principles of, of Dhamma we use in practice. How we might respond. We've spoken often of this, uh, the oasis of Dhamma in the Sagain Hills in Burma, uh, where we've established this project, hospital school, and water purification and preservation of sites, and this uh, Dharma Center, where this the uh, classic lineage teachings coming through the the, the monks, and a more contemporary uh, style of. Dhamma teaching of, of Western teachers, Shell and myself and others who have come and help us. The, the Sagain Hills, to me, brings together um, this spirit of wisdom of non-attachment and compassionate action together. This awareness of things, taking action and letting go. Because it has between one and two thousand uh, years of of lineage of, of two powerful uh, traditions. One is the Arya, it is the tradition of the noble ones, where one's motivation for practice is complete liberation, self-liberation. When you enter the Sagain Hills, there's even a sign there, Sagain Hills, abode of the noble ones. Uh, and beautiful stories of nuns and monks and lay people uh, who have attained you know, all these extraordinary states of liberation. Uh, you go to the monasteries and you see pictures of a long lineage of teachers, and even their like 12-year-old attendants who got fully enlightened in the process. So it's just it's a lovely little uh, tour of the possibilities. And at the same time, there are equally long tradition of bodhisattva. That is, those nuns, monks, lay women, lay men, who have sort of commissioned their lives in, in service of helping others. That's their practice. And they do that with the intention of becoming uh, eventually a, a Buddha to help all beings become enlightened. And they're side by side. Side by side. And in fact, in some of the ancient temples, in Pagan, you'll see these frescoes, a thousand years old frescoes of uh, Mahayana Tantric the frescoes side by side with the Theravada frescoes of you know, Jataka stories and whatnot. So you get this feeling because it's a, the Bodhisattva lineage, of course, went off into the, the Mahayana tradition of service and, uh, and the, uh, in the Theravada held the idea of self-liberation. But the truth is, is that they're both there. And when you study the early suttas and, and or go to a place like the Sagain Hills, there's a living example of it. In fact, the, the Sayada at Chazwa, where we have our center, is teacher and his teacher's teacher, were bodhisattvas. That is, they had um, devoted their lives to not becoming liberated in this life. That means they practice uh, all up and down the insight stages, um, but they don't go into the unconditioned. Because they're strengthening the paramis. They're strengthening all those forces of service. 
practice of generosity, renunciation, patience, energy, loving kindness, and so forth. So it's really uh, powerful to be in the presence of both these long lineages. I personally feel like in our culture there's um, a very strong bodhisattva spirit uh, with the same passion for liberation. There's some way of combining these two traditions into a single one uh, uh, where one practices for our own liberation but for the benefit of all beings. So that when we sit here and we make such a, a um, sharing of merit or a vow, may the benefits of my practice help liberate all beings everywhere. We're, we're doing this, this. We're bringing this bodhisattvic spirit into our uh, commitment for self-liberation. Unless, of course, any one of us are indeed devoted to the, in the purest sense, the bodhisattva path. Practicing not for enlightenment yet, but uh, sometime in the long rounds of samsara. And in the meantime, cultivating all the, the qualities the deep qualities. When I went to Burma, um, I felt immediately such a, a deep gratitude that the, the pure Dhamma has been held in a culture um, largely unaffected for a very long time, for many, many centuries, by uh, uh, dilution in any way of of pure lineages. And it's, it's really, it shows in the people, even though there's so many difficult things going on in Burma right now, um, there's such a, a grace in the people, such a, a beauty in the people, as, as one yogi said to me at a retreat recently, that the Burmese people, to me, embody how we all really are. You know, they're so naturally generous and kind and open and, and willing to serve and to be of service. That's their nature. But even though they're being really terribly oppressed by uh, the tools of fear <coughs> and so forth, w w when you see them out in, in their own um, grounds, you know, their own safe place, this is what they actually embody. And so, I mean, that's what inspired the activities that we do there, the retreat center and the help project, and help me to understand the commitment of Aung San Suu Kyi, the living spiritual and um, you know democratic leader of, of the country, who's been mostly imprisoned, one in one form or another, either formally or um, uh, de facto house arrests for. 12 years now. Uh, she's a real example of this, this combination of compassionate action and uh, non-attachment. She has no burnout because of her the gift of selflessness, bodhisattvic quality of selflessness within her. And one of my early conversations with her, we became quite close friends in the uh, 95, 96, 97, in the years where I could go into Burma, uh, and shortly after her house arrest release, one of our early conversations talking about the Bodhisattva path and how in the, uh, the Bodhisattva path as um, portrayed, for example, in the Jataka stories, of kinds of service and sacrifice. It is called the hero's path, the hero's journey. And because uh, she grew up hearing, having her grandma read her Jataka stories. And she had been already called in the press, in the media, she'd been called a hero, you know, or a heroine. And she's kind of smarted at being called that. We had this discussion about, uh, about this label of hero. And she said, you know, it's, uh, I'm not a hero. The people around me, my friends, the colleagues, all these, all the Burmese people who, who want this freedom, 
they have all these qualities that they say that I have. I don't like to be called a hero. And so I, I brought up the term virya with her, that which is one of the paramis and one of the enlightenment factors and one of the eightfold path factors. You know, it's in one of the many lists. Virya, meaning cur- courageous energy, or strength of heart. She says, "I'll take that. I, you can call me that. In fact, can I use that in my next talk? You know, which is when she's allowed to give her speeches." And she could associate with that because the, the, the courage, the courageous heart, the, the, the warrior's heart of Virya is totally dedicated, you know, as a parmi or as an eightfold path factor to, uh, to liberation of oneself or other beings or oneself for the sake of other beings. And it's something that one can relate to rather than the kind of grandstanding sense of, of the hero. It's all me. This is a genuine quality of greatness, true quality of greatness, differentiated from the one who thinks they're great. And the real great, great, great quality is this, this uh, virya type of hero's journey that uh, she exemplified. You know, her power, her poetry, her compassion, her, uh, her fearlessness are, are grounded in in her bodhisattvic path, which is essentially the, the paramis, particularly the brahma-viharas. She uses that as a way, for example, to differentiate the unacceptable or unskillful behavior of the authorities there, the leadership, from, uh, from personalities. She's not demonizing the particular individuals. She keeps associating her work and her mission with the issues, the oppression, the lack of freedom. She just stays with that. And therefore, she's like water. There's nothing there for the generals to grasp onto. She's bringing bringing together these qualities of compassion and emptiness paying attention to the conditions. That's what got her there in the first place. Uh, awakened her call to destiny, to step into her father's footsteps so many decades before. Paying attention and taking action in all the ways she's had, fearlessly just being unmovable, not leaving the country, even at the uh, sacrifice of being with her family. And standing up without a single arm you know, against this. And yet, not burning out because she's letting go control. And not attached to the results. When democracy doesn't arise, you know, that day, she just goes at it again the next day. Great power. She said, she said, I don't give up trying to be a better person. Every day, I don't give up trying to be a better person. Such actions are, can't be a burnout because they come out of such depth, come out of this compassionate action without needing the results to be a certain way. Although one may wish for the liberation, the, the actual mind state of trying to control, of being attached to the results, is given over to karma to the anatta element, to the emptiness. One of my favorite uh, sayings attributed to the um, Mahayana Bodhisattva of compassion, Kuan Yin, uh, the winds of emptiness are the winds of circumstance, the circumstance being the conditions, the lokadama. The winds of circumstance blow across emptiness. Whom can they harm? Winds of circumstance. It's all these lokadamas, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, praise and blame. They blow across emptiness, this deep non-attachment and not holding on. Whom can they harm? No one's there. Whom can they harm?
one of the most poignant, uh, in coming to a close here, one of the more unique or creative instructions I ever received from my teacher uh, was after practicing with him for a long time and really learning about the, the vehicle, the vessel of the Eightfold Path, the path of love and understanding. Learning to care for it, to respect it, uh, to use it, to incline the mind to seeing the as it isness of things, to incline the mind always to be mindful of whatever's happening, to be heedful, careful. Built up real deep fundamental uh, grounding in the, in the vehicle, the vessel of the Eightfold Path. And then once his instruction uh, was repeatedly uh, to, to do, to don't do anything. You know, and so I was confused. And I'd been doing all these different practices of, you know, one foundation of mindfulness at a time and all these um, various themes, variations on the theme of um, meditative practice. And, um, uh, and he just said, don't do anything. And I said, well, what do you mean, just back to the breath then? No, don't do anything. Well, shall I uh, just walk and not sit? No, don't do anything. No matter what I said, watch feelings, watch sensations, watch the mind. You just want me to watch mind. This is, I got it now. This is deep teachings. Just watch mind only. Nope, don't do anything. And, and he, he was weaning me from any relationship at all with the, with the vehicle, with the yana, yana, the vehicle. And later explained that, and it's in the suttas, it's in the early suttas of the Buddha, uh, cling to nothing whatsoever, not even to dhamma. Don't cling to, to sila samadhi panya, don't cling to the Eightfold Path, don't cling to love and understanding, don't cling to anything. Let it all go. Let everything go. And that, that uh, you know, that attitude is really helpful all along. You know, even when we are in relationship and using the vehicle, we'll take good care of it. And we'll embody it. We'll embody the love and understanding. We'll be it. And at the appropriate moment, uh, because already we've learned this practice of of non-attachment, uh, there's no holding on, so that even the vehicle, even the idea of the vehicle, it falls away. It all falls away. Keep the island in mind. Be like the navigator with that perfect six-limbed equanimity, who just reads the signs, the sense doors, tuition, and guides the way, takes the, the vehicle along the way. This is a song from uh, anonymous Inuit Eskimo, based on the legend of origins from a long oral tradition. In the very earliest time, when both people and animals lived on earth, a person be could become an animal if he wanted to, and an animal could become a human being. Sometimes they were people, and sometimes animals, and there was no difference. All spoke the same language. That was the time when words were like magic. The human mind had mysterious powers. A word spoken by chance, might have strange consequences. It would suddenly come alive. And what people wanted to happen could happen. All you had to do was say it. Nobody could explain this. That's the way it was. Sit a moment.
without being attached to our, our vehicle, path of love and understanding, without being attached to Dharma, completely let go and be carried by the current of the Dharma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.